Well, if you have your Bible, I would ask that you would turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is where we're picking up in our exposition of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 is where we're beginning. And we're going to be reading and studying through to chapter 7 verse 24. That's the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. Let me read that to you. Follow along with me. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in this generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, 
and Ham and Jepheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the, earth, of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Will you pray with me? O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, you're our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. The big idea from this entire passage is this. God will judge the corrupt and save the righteous. God will judge the corrupt and save the righteous. And I have three points in my outline this morning. Three points in my outline. I'll share those with you as we come to them. Last week we saw in verse 8 of, the, uh, of Genesis 6 that as men began to multiply on the earth, so did evil and sin. And God began to push back against the evil of mankind, first by limiting their lifespans. So if they lived far fewer years, then they would be able to commit far less wickedness on the earth. But it seems as though fallen angels invaded earth and they took human wives and that further corrupted marriage and intensified the pride and arrogance of humanity. And so God, being entirely holy and just and grieved in His heart at man's sin, determined to destroy all humankind and the animals that mankind was to rule over. Destruction was coming for everyone on earth. Everyone except Noah. Verse 8 stands in contrast to the depressing picture that verses 1 through 7 painted for us, and it reads... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, favor is God's initiative in blessing Noah with a loving relationship. God's favor here literally means grace. Noah found grace with God. And as chapter 6 continues, we learn how Noah will care, excuse me, how God will carry out his judgment on the earth and how he'll spare Noah. Verse 9. The first verse in our text this morning tells us that a new section of Genesis is beginning. And if you'll remember, these sections in Genesis almost all begin by zooming in on a particular person 
and the generations of people that come from them. It's, it's that sentence, and these are the generations of, and usually it's a person's name. The first one was the generations of the heavens and the earth. That was back in chapter 2, verse 4. That's the only one that's not a person's name. And then the second was the generations of Adam that we were introduced to at the beginning of chapter 5. And this is the third. The third, the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Noah. The first point in the outline this afternoon is based on the verses that contrast righteous Noah with the corrupt world that he lived in. And that's in verses 9 through 12. The point is this. Live righteous lives in this corrupt world. Live righteous lives in this corrupt world. Verses 9 and 10 begin by telling us more about what effect the Lord's favor had on Noah. And the author of Genesis tells us that he had three sons as well, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now, regarding his character, as described in our passage, it uses two words and a phrase to describe Noah. Noah was righteous, Noah was blameless, and Noah walked with God. Righteous, blameless, and he walked with God. Now that first word, righteous, that describes Noah, it's actually the first time that we we're seeing it in the Bible. Of course, we're just in the sixth chapter of the Bible, so there's lots of new first words that we're seeing. But as you know, that word will be repeated many, many, many times in the Bible. Righteous means that here Noah has met a right standard of conduct in his actions. He's met a right standard of conduct. Blameless means complete or sound. It means that Noah has integrity in his behavior. Now, neither of these words mean that Noah was perfect. It, it doesn't mean that Noah was sinless. We'll learn a little bit later, a few chapters beyond this, that Noah, in fact, was not sinless. We'll see the evidence of that. But Noah was a person of good character, nevertheless. After working as an engineer for several years, I began full-time ministry with students, and one of the couples that I ministered to while they were students wanted to get married, and they asked me to perform the wedding. It was to be the first wedding that I had ever performed, and so I researched what I needed to do in the particular state that I lived in in order to uh, officiate that wedding so that it was legitimate. And the rule in the state where I lived said that I could perform weddings if I went down to the courthouse, the main courthouse in that county of my state, and I brought with me a property owner from the county, and they vouched for me or they reported that I had good character. That's all they had to say. Brian has good character. And then I could marry anyone that I wanted to do. Now, it didn't mean when this neighbor of mine named Marie went down to the courthouse with me and said, Brian has good character. It didn't mean that Brian it was sinless. But it meant that Brian's life, his way of living, his behavior stands out from a lot of other people around him. Well, the same is true here. Noah was blameless and righteous. He was a person of good character. 
Now, we've already seen this phrase, walked with God. We saw it back in chapter 5. It was said of Enoch. Enoch was an ancestor of Noah, in between Seth and Noah. And it was also true of Adam. We saw that actually in chapter 3 of Genesis. Noah is said to have walked with God in the garden. Walking with God speaks of side-by-side fellowship. It speaks about a loving and obedient relationship with God. I said it this way a month ago when I preached on chapter 5. I said this, that to walk with God means to live a life that is pleasing to God in intimate relationship with God. That's what it means to walk with God. These words, righteous, blameless, walked with God, all together they tell us that Noah was different. Noah was different. He was different from all of those around him. And one commentator summed it up like this. He says, Noah stands out from all the other people on the earth as a man of right conduct who enjoys a right relationship with God during a day of unrestrained evil. Now, we already learned about that unrestrained evil back up in verses 1 through 7 of Genesis chapter 6. But as if that wasn't enough for us to get the picture, the author of Genesis wants to drive it home even further. He tells us that man was corrupt. He uses the word corrupt three times in two verses. And he adds to the indictment against humanity by calling out mankind's violence. So what had begun as the first murder in chapter 4 of Genesis now has spread and intensified throughout all of humanity. And so the world has become a very, very dangerous place to live. Corruption and violence, there are two more aspects of the complete and utter sinfulness of mankind that we only had hints of back up in verses 1 through 7. So then to draw from verses 1 through 8 and 9 through 12, there's sexual and marital dysfunction, there's pride and arrogance, there's violence everywhere, and you could sum it all up with the word corruption, actually. Mankind was rotten, rotten to the core. And the world is not much different now, is it? All of these distortions of God's plan for man, they're all too familiar to us when we look around us, particularly when we look in the news or perhaps in our home countries. We see all these kinds of things happening, oftentimes oftentimes hardly restrained, if any, by the laws of the land. But Noah, Noah was different. Some of you here this afternoon may not be Christians. I'm not sure what led you to come and join us this afternoon, but I I don't think you're here by any mistake. I want to tell you something about Christians. Like Noah, Christians' lives should be different than those that they live around. You should know as well that the Bible says that there are some people who claim to be Christians who are not true Christians, Their lives might look very similar to everyone else's, but they claim to be religious or devout. They claim to be followers of Jesus, perhaps. But becoming a Christian is something that happens on the inside of a person first. 
It happens there. And it has to do with a change in their relationship with God. Sometimes we say, as Christians, we say to someone, if we want to invite them to become a Christian, we say to them, uh, you need a relationship with God. But the truth of the matter is that, is that everyone already has a relationship with God. It's just that many, many people have a bad relationship with God. They are under the condemnation of God because of their sin. But when a person becomes a Christian, when they turn in repentance and faith to God, then their outside begins to change as well. Sometimes it changes very slowly, painfully slowly. Many of us in the room who are Christians feel like we look back at times in our lives and we realize, wow, I don't even know if I changed any during that period of time, those years maybe even. But God is at work in those whom He has saved, those who have repented and trusted in Him, no matter how slowly the changes are occurring. Sometimes the changes happen very quickly. They're dramatic. And we praise God for those times as well. But being a Christian, walking with God, means that your life begins to change because of what has happened on the inside and in your relationship with God. It means that perhaps... And for example, your relationships with people in your family change. Now, I know that many of you have difficult relationships with your family. But a Christian will begin to pray and ask God to strengthen them and give them wisdom to know how to act in love towards family members, even family members that do not respect them, family members that treat them poorly. While we want to treat everyone with kindness and love, as Christians, we realize that it starts in our homes first and foremost. If we can't do it there, where can we do it? Another aspect where you should see differences in Christians' lives is in how they treat people who are different than them. Different nationalities, different gender different culture, you should see differences in how they treat those kind of people. The Bible teaches us as Christians that all people are made in the image of God, and so when we see a, a man who has a job who's cleaning a restroom, that's his job, we see someone who's made in the image of God. Or, or when we see a construction worker by the side of the road, we see a person made in the image of God. Security guards or cashiers or waiters, no matter where they're from, those are people who are image bearers. And we know that if we treat them with disrespect, we're sinning against the God who made them. These are some of the things that you should see in a real Christian's life. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, our lives should be different our lives should be different. Our attitudes at work should be different. Our habits and our pastimes should be different than those of the world. No matter how corrupt the world around us is, we are called to live righteous and blameless lives. Now think for a minute about the pressure that was on Noah. The entire world was corrupt, but Noah was righteous and blameless Living a righteous and blameless life when the whole world is corrupt and being outnumbered is so difficult. And some of you know what that's like, even in your workplace, for example. Maybe even in your family. 
the pressure to conform to the world, to fall into line with the way they're behaving is immense in your life. No one knows what it's like. God knows what it's like for you. He sees your situation just like he saw Noah's situation, and he strengthened him, and he will strengthen you. Like Noah, we're not sinless, and to be surrounded by a corrupt world is a perfect scenario for temptation or being overwhelmed by the world. Don't think that because you're a Christian, you can regularly put yourself into those situations where you're surrounded by sin and disobedience to God and stand firm for very long. Of course, sometimes that happens to us. We don't choose that, but we should never seek it out. That's one of the reasons why we join the church, why we commit to one another and covenant relationship with one another. If we don't have to, we don't want to be alone in the Christian life. We, we need each other to strengthen and encourage one another, to live for Christ each and every day. Being a part of the local church strengthens us for that. I grew up doing a lot of camping in the woods with my family. I know some of you are thinking I would never go camping. Well, that's what we did for recreation. And one of the best things about camping was sitting around the campfire in the evenings. And uh, when it was time to leave that campsite, perhaps in the evening, the campfire would need to be put out or else it was a, a danger for a forest fire. And we would never leave the coals heaped up together. We would never leave them like that. Why? Because we knew that they would stay hotter for longer and pose a great danger if they were all close together, packed in. What we did was we spread them out. We spread them out so that they would grow cold very quickly. The same is true for Christians. If we want to live wholeheartedly for Jesus, we need to stay close to one another in our walk with Christ. To neglect fellowship and Christian encouragement is like removing a hot coal from the fire and setting it out all by itself. It's going to cool off awfully fast. We grow cold in our love for Christ and the gospel very quickly when we're disconnected from Christian fellowship. I recently heard about a young woman who claims to be a Christian. She moved to Dubai, but upon arriving in Dubai, she's so far at least avoided Christian fellowship. She's not come and joined with any church here in the city joined with people who want to help her continue to walk with Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters, such willful avoidance of fellow Christians and the church is likely to lead to a shipwrecked faith. Believe me, it happens over and over and over again, particularly in Dubai, doesn't it? Instead, we as Christians strive to be like Noah, to walk with God with one another, living lives differently than the world lives. Noah even had his sons and their wives and his own wife with him. They were eight in total. Noah had experienced the favor and grace of God, and so God also had a different plan for him that he had, than he had for the rest of mankind. And that introduces the second point this afternoon. The second point is obey God's plan for salvation. Obey God's plan for salvation. 
You see that in verses 13 of chapter 6 all the way to chapter 7, verse 5. 6, 13 to 7, 5. In verse 13, God begins speaking to Noah, and He tells him what He plans to do in response to the corruption and violence that's on the earth. It says, and God said to Noah, I'm in verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then throughout the entire account of Noah and the flood, God tells Noah what's going to happen before it happens. And at the middle of this section of Scripture, at verse 17 in chapter 6, he says it again. He tells him how he will destroy all flesh. It will be through a flood of waters. And then towards the end of this section, in 7 verse 4, he says it again. Every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. He tells Noah when it will happen and many details about how it will happen. Now, God reveals what His plans are to those who listen to Him. And for us, He's done that in His Word. He's revealed to us what His plans are. We don't have to wonder what will happen in the future. God has spoken to us. It's in the Bible. For example, we know that Jesus will come back in glory and power. We sang about that in at least one of our songs this morning. We know it because He's told us that. We know that Christians will suffer much before He comes back. We know that He will defeat Satan once and for all when He comes back. We know that in the meantime, He will guide and lead us through His Spirit. We know that we must stay spiritually awake to potential threats to our faith and in our church because people will come in among us who are like wolves in sheep's clothing. He's told us that in His Word. All these things and more the Lord has told us far ahead of time. God is telling you what will happen so that you will not be caught off guard. And, and so that you will have confidence and assurance that God is in control of your life no matter what's going on around you. And you'll know how to respond. You'll know how to respond because God's instructed us in His Word. What a privilege it is that God would share with us His creatures, His plans, and what His purposes are in the world. It's amazing. He didn't have to do that. Make it your goal to know the Bible through and through so that you know what God is doing and how you're to respond in each and every situation. Well, in this passage... God gives specific instructions for Noah to follow so that he and his family and a remnant of the animals from the earth will be saved through the coming flood. So verse 14 through 16, if you'll look there, he tells Noah exactly how to make the ark. In Hebrew, the word for ark literally means chest. It's like a chest where you would store valuable things. He tells Noah the exact materials, the exact dimensions, and the exact design. It's to have three decks or three floors, and it will have a door on the side of it. And then after sharing his specific plan for how he'll destroy the earth through a flood of waters, he tells Noah who will get to go into the ark and why. Look with me at verse 18. It's an important verse. God says, <clears throat> 
but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Now we have another first word citing in the Bible here, the word covenant. We haven't seen it in the Bible before. We've talked about it because when we studied Genesis 1 and 2, we established based on what was going on there and God's communication with Adam and with Eve that a covenant was being established with them. So a covenant is a binding relationship between two or more parties that involves promises for remaining faithful to the relationship and consequences for breaking it. That's what a covenant is. God is saying He will initiate the covenant with Noah. And by virtue of their relationship with God, Noah's family will be saved as well. Now later I'm going to come back to this idea of God's relationship specifically with Noah and how it affects his family. So just keep that tucked away in your mind. Now in addition to his family, Noah is to take two of every kind of animal, male and female, into the ark with him. And in verses 19 and 20, God makes sure that he knows to take male and female pairs into the ark because he's going to want those animals to multiply after the flood. And in verse 21, he instructs Noah to take enough food in for everyone, including the animals, to be sustained. And how did Noah respond? He obeyed. He obeyed in everything. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so God speaks to Noah again, and he reminds him why he will, why he will be saved from death in the floodwaters. Chapter 7, verse 1, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Finally, in this section, God speaks to Noah and gives him more detail about the number of pairs of the animals to take into the ark, seven pairs of the clean animals, seven pairs of birds, and one pair of the unclean animals. God has evidently communicated to Noah which animals are ceremonially unclean and which ones are ceremonially clean. Clean animals and birds can be used for sacrifices. Unclean animals can't. Again, how does Noah respond? Verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah's complete obedience was because of his complete faith in God. The author of Hebrews that Mark read to us at the very beginning of our service this morning is, tells us about Noah. It says, I'll read it again, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Faith always precedes true obedience to God. Faith always precedes true obedience to God. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear, Noah inherited righteousness because he had faith. He didn't earn righteousness. It was given to him. And his faith moved him to obey God. 
So it's not enough for people to simply read a command in the Bible and say, for example, do not steal, and to think that without faith in God's promises, they can just try to not steal at any point in time in their life and please God with that. No, they can't please God without having faith in God. You may remember that I read Hebrews 11 verse 6. It's actually the verse right before the one that I just read to you. And it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith powers and fuels our obedience to God. It powers and fuels our obedience to God. And obedience then points back to and gives evidence of faith. So our obedience to God's commands shows evidence of our faith in Him. Brothers and sisters, do you want to grow in obedience? Do you find that there are areas of disobedience that you're struggling with? Is there some promise of God, perhaps, or a truth that He teaches that you're not believing that prevents obedience in that area? What about anger? Let's take that as an example. Are you struggling to not get angry with a family member or a coworker or the guy that just sideswiped you driving down Sheikh Zayed Road? Are you a parent that's finding your patience running thin and you're lapsing regularly into yelling at your children? What promises or truths of God might you be disbelieving that lead to fits of anger? Perhaps you're not believing that it's God's right to pay back wrongdoing against you and not your right. It could be that you're believing that louder and more threatening reactions from you will produce the right response in your child rather than loving and firm instructions, which if your child disobeys results in you handing out the appropriate punishment or correction to teach them that it's wrong to disobey. Ultimately, it's wrong to disobey God. Usually when there's a disobedience problem in us, there's a faith or a belief problem at the root of it. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him because he had great faith in him. Look for that root of disbelief or unbelief in yourself if you're struggling with an area of disobedience. It's also significant to notice that salvation would come through obeying God's specific plans for Noah. Noah didn't have the option of saying to God, well, look, I don't like that ark plan. I think I have another idea. No, he he took the plan that God gave him. And we also receive the plan that God gives us. If you're not a Christian, I wonder if you think that there may be many ways to be spared from standing before God and being condemned for your sin. People today often think that there are many ways to please God. There's Islam, there's Hinduism, there's Christianity, or maybe there's just trying to be a good person. Just be faithful and carry out the most important aspects of whichever religion you want to follow, we're told. But God's plan for salvation from His judgment for us and the consequences of our sin is very, very specific 
like the plan for Noah and his family and the animals. His plan all centers on the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. It's what the Bible calls the good news or the gospel. And rather than pour out his good and right wrath on us, he sent his son, who was a perfectly righteous man. He'd never sinned. And Jesus was also the one who was fully God. He was fully God and fully man. And God planned for him to, in the greatest injustice that the world has ever known, be sent to the cross to be brutally executed. And when he took that undeserved punishment, he was taking it for us who do deserve it. God raised him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit to show that his payment for our sin had been paid in full. And if, if we admit our sinfulness and guilt before God and we renounce it and instead believe that Jesus is, in fact, God's Son and our rightful King and that His death paid for our sin debt, then we're not simply spared the judgment that we deserve to go on about our lives. No, no, no. We're actually adopted into the family of God. We become heirs, inheritors. We become sons and daughters of God. That's God's specific and singular plan for salvation for everyone, everywhere. One specific plan centered on Jesus. Will you obey God's plan? Or will you fool yourself into thinking that you can craft your own? Oh, I urge you, I urge you, obey God's only plan for salvation. Repent of your sin and trust in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross. The ark is constructed now after our passage. The instructions for what and who to take into the ark have been given. And now God's judgment is almost here. And that brings us to our third point this afternoon. God's judgment is sudden and His salvation secure. God's judgment is sudden and His salvation secure. That's in verses 7, uh, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 6 through the end of the chapter to verse 24. Verses 6 through 9 of chapter 7 really act as a summary of this entire last section. We learn that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. We're reminded about his family, those additional seven people who will go into the ark with Noah, along with the different types of animals, both clean and unclean. And then it comes. It comes suddenly and with no one else but Noah and his family expecting it. As if to emphasize the fact that this flood, this deluge, was a true historical event, verse 11 tells us again of Noah's age and the exact day that the rain began, the second month and the 17th day during Noah's 600th year. It's amazing. And the water came up from below and it came down from above. On, in verse 11 it says, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Water's gushing up from below, and rain is coming down from above. 
And then in verse 13, we learned that on that same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons entered the ark. Verse 14 confirms that the animals made it into the ark. They all went in just as God had commanded. And verse 16 ends with this curious phrase. I wonder if you noticed it. There at the end of the verse, and the Lord shut him in. Verse 17 through 24 describes how the floodwaters rose and covered the earth and accomplished the judgment that God intended. Four times it says that the waters prevailed. It uses that phrase, meaning that the water conquered or the water dominated. It prevailed to such an extent that the water rose above the mountaintops almost seven meters. The flood in Noah's day serves as a preview for us of a greater judgment that will happen in the future. Indeed, it hasn't happened yet, but it will. I want to share with you three things that Noah's flood teaches us about the final day of judgment that's coming. Three things that it teaches us. First, it is certain. It is certain. Just as God promised the flood would happen and He caused it to happen, so Jesus will return and judge everyone. 2 Peter chapter 2 argues that because God did keep His word at the flood, at the time of the flood, so He'll keep it for the final judgment day as well. It's evidence. God's final judgment is a certainty, just like the flood was a certainty. Second, it will be sudden. It will be sudden. The New Testament teaches us that no one believed that a flood would actually happen. We read this morning in our corporate reading from Matthew chapter 24, and Jesus was speaking, and He tells them, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so it will be, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' return will be sudden, and only God's people will be the ones who are not surprised if we stay spiritually alert and ready for His return. Thirdly, the final judgment will be complete. It will be complete. The repetition in verses 21 through the first part of 23 emphasizes how complete the destruction of all the earth was and all life on it. It says, all flesh died, all mankind died. Everything in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing. They were blotted out from the earth. It's hard to read. And the same will be true on that final judgment day. No one will escape examination. The final judgment is certain it will be sudden, and it will be complete. Friends, friends, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? The way to be ready for that day is to be ready today. Turn to Christ if you haven't yet given your life to Him. Take advantage of the great merciful salvation that He offers to us. Don't delay, don't put it off. If you trust in Christ today, you will be ready.
And what about Noah and those with him? They were secure. They were safe. They had been shown favor. And did you notice the kindness of God in securing their rescue? (laughs) It was literally God who shut them in. I mentioned that just a minute ago. God shut him in. It was, it's kind of like the care and shepherding that a parent shows when they gently strap their child into a car seat. They buckle them in. They pull the straps tight enough to be safe. And they close and lock the doors of the car so that their child is safe on the inside. As the waters of the flood increased, it says in verse 17, they bore up the ark. It's almost like a mother carefully carrying her young. What a kind and loving God we have. A God who bears us up in Christ and draws us near to Himself. A God who shuts us in with Christ our Savior securely, never to be ripped from His hands. Safe and secure when the final judgment comes. What confidence that we can have in Christ. What assurance of His love. And did you read the end of verse 18? (laughs) Listen to it carefully. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Did you hear that? The ark floated on the face of the waters. That simple statement echoes verse 2 of chapter 1 in Genesis. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In fact, you might have noticed throughout this passage this afternoon, language that is much like Genesis 1 and 2. It's all throughout the passage. Heavens and earth are mentioned over and over again. Water on the earth. That's how the earth started out in the beginning. In fact, on the second day of creation, the heavens were created when water was separated into water above and water below. And now those two are coming back again together. Days and nights are mentioned repeatedly in our passage. Pairs of animals, male and female, creatures with the breath of life in their nostrils. God is giving specific commands to Noah, just like He gave to Adam and Eve. There are four marriages that are represented on the ark, like the marriage that God created in chapters 1 and 2. And a covenant, a covenant with God is described. God is not just passing judgment here. He is actually reversing what He did in the first two chapters of Genesis. He's reversing it in order to start over. But He's not destroyed everyone, has He? (laughs) No, because He had promised that a descendant of the woman Eve would one day defeat a descendant of the serpent. And that descendant will come from Noah. And because of that, because of that promise that God made, Noah and his family are rescued. On the next to last sentence assures us of how fortunate Noah and his family were. It says, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Just like Noah's family was saved because of Noah's righteousness, because of the covenant that God was making with him specifically, we are saved through Christ's righteousness. 
Because Noah found favor with God, those who were in his household did too. Those of us who are in the church, which is called the household of God in Ephesians, we too experience the favor of God through the head of the house, Jesus. Through faith, Noah obeyed in the face of all who disbelieved him. And through faith, Jesus obeyed and went to the cross, stunning even his closest friends and family with his obedience. Noah and the ark point forward to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who saves. Romans 5, 18 and 19 say, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We're not saved by our own works, but by the righteousness of Christ. Noah's obedience saved others in a temporary way, and Jesus' obedience saves far more in an eternal way. Church and friends, Jesus is God's means of divine rescue for us from a certain, sudden, and complete judgment. Trust and rejoice in His merciful, kind, and loving rescue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus. We thank You that He found favor in Your eyes, that He was a man of complete and total faith. He was a man that had no sin. He was a man who went to the cross in obedience. And he was a man that you raised from the dead and who now sits at the right hand of you. We praise you for Jesus. We praise you for his mercy. In Christ's name, amen.